Good morning. We've been working our way through John's letter, and we've observed that John outlived the rest of the apostles by almost a half a century. He was the last one then who had been in touch with, heard, saw, and touched Jesus, makes him the last living apostle and the final eyewitness. He's also called the apostle of love in his own gospels. Four times he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, and when Jesus had to make arrangements for his mother to be cared for. She put her in John's care, and he brought her into his home then and took care of her. Um, Doesn't surprise us to find John returning to the theme of love again and again in his letter. And with that, let's read from 1 John 4, 7 to 21. I'll read and follow along with me. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him. And he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother There are two classic books on the attributes of God. Knowing God by J.I. Packer and the Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. I love the quote in Packer's book, Knowing God, about the love of God. And I remember reading it and, and I wanted to memorize it and have done so. 
says God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quenches determination to bless me. Listen to this. God's love is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned by, by myself and quench his determination to bless me. To try to boil that down, what it says, God can never be disillusioned about you because he's never illusioned about you in the first place. Well, I remember doing a study on the love of God and what would happen, I'd think about his love, and then I'd think about how unlike that I am. And so I'd think about this and this expression of love, and I'd think about that I don't do that very well. And what occurred to me, I remember thinking um, that maybe I need to not let my thoughts drift, and I think it was more just a thought. I think it was something I was supposed to do. I think he was directing me. Again, I don't get words. I don't hear things. But it occurred to me, don't do that. Just think about the fact that this is what he's like. And so I just tried to let my thoughts go there. And the knee-jerk reaction, I'm not like that. I tried to keep my thoughts up there. And what ended up occurring to me is that with God, love is easy for him. It's natural. It's like breathing. God loves without resentment and remorse. God loves without breaking a sweat. We think about God's love. It's talked about often. And yet we have good reasons to doubt it. In fact, there's two reasons to doubt the love of God. I think as we see it, there are reasons that we can sweep aside. They're not legitimate, but they are reasons to doubt his love. One reason is the Old Testament of the Bible. And if we look and read the stories, there are some occasions where God seems loving, but many occasions when he does not. Would you agree with me? Civilizations killed. Things occur that we look at, God shows up apparently, and it's terrifying. And um, how do we reconcile what God says about himself and what we read? Um, Stephen, one of the early church leaders, spoke these words right before he was stoned to death. Listen to what he says. He, in speaking of Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. And then talks about the law that was put into effect through angels. When you read the Old Testament accounts in Exodus, Exodus and Deuteronomy, it doesn't say that angels spoke to Moses from Mount Sinai. It says that God did. And yet, Stephen indicates that it was really an angel that was speaking on God's behalf. And that happens oftentimes. King dispatches ambassadors to speak on behalf of the king. It's not the king there. It's the ambassador of the king who speaks in the king's name. And what Stephen then indicates to us is that it was apparently an ambassador that spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
It was an angel. And that answers some questions for us. If you look and see what it says in John, the text that's in your worship folder, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Again, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And what it says, when Jesus came into the world, we saw God's face for the first time. But what happened on Mount Sinai? It says that God spoke to Moses. How do we reconcile that? And Stephen answers the question for us, and so does Paul, that God didn't himself come into direct contact with Moses or with the Israelites. God spoke to Moses through an angel. And angels spoke to the people through Moses. God made his will known through angels by a mediator, through the ambassador of an ambassador. So, angels bore God's message. And Moses bore the angel's message. And that, by the time it got down, it was the copy of a copy. God's influence twice removed. In contrast to the message spoken through angels, Jesus is the exact reflection of God. Unlike Mount Sinai, Jesus reveals what God is like. When there's a disparity between what we read in the Old Testament and what we find in the face of Christ, the face of Christ trumps what comes before. He is the expression of God. He reveals God with clarity. He fully and finally reveals what God is like. And Jesus coming then, um, it's not God speaking through the ambassador of an ambassador. We find reason to doubt because... Um, some of it is rooted in the Old Testament until we understand what actually occurs. Some of our problem is rooted in the New Testament of the Bible. What it says, it says in this text, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation, it's translated from the Greek word helios. Helios means to be gracious, favorable, benevolent, and cheerful. If I am then like this, that's not helios. This is not helios. This is helios. Helios is non-reactive. The, when it says he is the propitiation for our sins, it's saying he is the reason that God becomes helios, that God becomes non-reactive to our sins. That's what it indicates. There's a couple different ways that this could occur. Um, God sent his son to be the means by which God becomes helios. Now, this isn't a word, but the helioser. He becomes the means by which God becomes helioser. So what's Jesus' mission? To be the helioser. And to be the means by which God becomes helios with respect to our sins. Gracious, favorable, benevolent, cheerful, non-reactive to our sins. That's what Jesus came to do. There's two ways for Jesus to be the helioser. One way is to deal with the offended God. Another way is to 
deal with the offending act. That's different. To deal with an offended God, that's one thing. To deal with the offending act, sin, that's another thing. To deal with the offended God, that's propitiation. It's when somebody's displeased. And somebody does something to cause me, okay then, to lay aside my displeasure. That's what propitiation is. Expiation is a different thing. Expiation doesn't deal with the offended God. It deals with the offending act. If sin is in the way, expiation moves sin out of the way. It's not Again, that's a different thing. So when it says here propitiation, the Bible is the literal sense, the literal word is God sent his son to be the means whereby Jesus, God becomes Helios. That's, but how did he do that? What happened at the cross? Was the cross a means of dealing with the offended God or the offending act? Was God looking down at mankind, angry at sin, having to take out his wrath on someone? And Jesus said, okay, I'll step in front of mankind and you can lay your wrath on me. Is that what happened at the cross? God the Father punishing his son? That's what propitiation signifies. And to put that word in this text and in most texts, is not a translation, it's an interpretation. Sometimes the thing that gets in the way of us understanding God is when, again, well-meaning people, they try to clarify something, but that doesn't clarify it. That pushes us in a direction that the Bible, I don't think, is pushing us. God the Father did not punish his son on the cross. It was father and son. Dealing with the offending act, dealing with sin, sin was taken out of the way. God judged law at the cross. When law was judged at the cross, the sins that were based on transgressing that law, they get taken out of the way. So what happens at the cross is father and son deal with the offending act. It's not the son stepping in our place and God saying, okay then, so I'll punish you so I don't need to punish you. Do you see the difference in that? If the father punished his son on the cross, taking out his wrath for sin, and then he wipes the blood off his hand and extends it and says, welcome to the family? No. No. Not what happened. Again, it's, it's seen as what happened. I, that's, um, why is this important? Our mental representation of God's responsiveness is critical. There's a uh, couple things God would be to us. He would be a safe haven. A safe haven is one to whom you can come. Confident that when you come there, you will find someone who is Helios. You can come to him at any time. After you've done something wrong, you can come to him. That's what it means for God to be a safe haven. Now, this is really important. 
a safe haven, it's necessary because when God is a safe haven, he becomes a secure base. We have these things to explore, things in ourselves, things in ourselves that we don't think very highly of. I think all of us understand that we have thoughts and feelings we really don't care that much about, and we imagine that God is looking at those things. Well, you know how you imagine his face, right? That's not his face. Not his face. Why is that important? Because if God's a safe haven to whom we can come, he's a secure base from whom we can stop pushing things down within ourselves. We can hold the thoughts and feelings that we have and hold God's hand at the same time. That's a very difficult thing. It's vital. You cannot love if judgment is in place. To the degree judgment is in place, love becomes very difficult. You can't be gentle with yourself if you're judging yourself. Would you agree? You can't be gentle with another if you're judging another. Gentleness and judgment, they don't. So what God would be for us, a safe haven and a secure base. And then it's necessary to get this thought in our mind. Loving God for many is like loving an alcoholic father. An alcoholic father who's not a good drunk, who's a mean drunk. Now, when he's not drunk, then some some of you grew up in homes like this, that well-meaning, but alcohol issues. And when sober, things were quiet and peaceful. When alcohol was involved, things were anything but quiet and peaceful. And the same father became different people. Is God like that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And growing up in a home like that, I imagine you you would understand that you can never feel really safe, can you? It all depends. When he gets home from work, the later he gets home, the more unsafe it's going to become. God's not like that. Our ability to love is, and this is important because our ability to love is rooted in our experience of being loved. It says we love because he first loved us. Um, let's talk about our love, God's love, and then our love. Read, it says, beloved, in every verse, halfway through verse 11, if God so loved us, we all, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, that so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not 
been perfected in love. I'm reading this a second time. This is unbelievable stuff. I think at this point, there's sometimes writers in the Bible, I think what John is happening at this point, he is capturing things in such a clear way. I think his pen is flying across the paper. I think as he looks on what he has written, this biblically is at the pinnacle in terms of what he says about God and what he says about love and how simply he puts it and how clearly he says it. Um, we love God because he first loved us. Um, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Um, it says, we abide him in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have to know what it means for God to give us a spirit. Not only what it means, but why. Why has God given us a spirit? What it says in 1 Corinthians 2. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. God gave His Spirit as an act of intimacy. You spent Thanksgiving with family, loved ones, relatives, maybe individuals you haven't seen for a while. And when you sat down and had conversations with these individuals, and if you're close with them, you told them, what is happening. You opened up. You didn't just tell them things are fine. If there's things going on and you're close with these individuals, when you sat down after the meal, you opened your heart. Why did you open up your heart to them? Because they are family. And if there is the safety there, you feel safe with them. And so you can explore some of your thoughts and feelings. You can talk about them because they are safe. They're individuals with whom you have a deep relationship. And, and when that's in place, you can talk about a number of different things. That's the way it is when it's safe. It's the way it is when it's safe. You can explore things. You don't have to be careful. That's what God is like. Now, we don't see him that way. We don't see him that way. We have some natural tendencies that we need to say what he wants us to hear, but that's not what he wants. That's not what he wants. That's not what love is based upon. Um, he gave us his spirit in order to reveal his deep thoughts to us. You would imagine that on Mount Sinai that that's what God is like. Kind of terrifying. We have a tendency to think that God is some kind of combination of Sinai severity and Calvary kindness. He is not. Deep down, if you want to know what God is like in his deepest thoughts, that's what the Spirit of God reveals. Now, here's what God has done. With Christ, it's like God has taken the deepest part of himself, the part that is not readily seen and express that to you. Why would God express his inner thoughts to you? Through his spirit. It's an act of intimacy. God sent his spirit 
in order to open his heart to you. Why would he do that? Because he would be a safe haven and a secure base for you. One to whom you could come. One with whom you could feel safe. One to whom you could express your deepest thoughts because he expresses his deepest thoughts to you. He does. That's why he sent his spirit. He sent his spirit because he wants an intimate relationship with you. And he goes first. He goes first. This is what I think. And he sends his spirit to communicate that. What does he want in return? He wants your honesty. He wants an intimate relationship with you as you are, not as you think you should be. He understands what you're like. And he wants us to feel safe enough to communicate. You know what happens as you communicate? Well, let's talk about that. What do we need to do to, to be able to grasp God's love? There are reasons that we call it into question, but we've talked about some of those. If we want it to be more rooted in his love, um, I think there's four things. We'll look at them briefly. Um, ACTS, we've talked about this before. We'll get back to that. Authenticity, confidence, transformation, and strength. Start with authenticity. When Jesus puts the cross here, and this is on the back of your worshipful, you flip it, there's some things on the back. You might Allude to that. When Jesus puts the crosshairs on spiritual enemy number one, he places them on hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus was fully expressive, and there was he had no problem with demoniacs, no problem with prostitutes. He just couldn't crack a Pharisee. And he indicates what the problem was. What's the deal? What's the resistance? Who could resist Jesus' love? Hypocrisy could. He said, this is the, um, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is concealed judgment. It comes from two words, under, and then a second word, judge. It's concealed judgment. Hypocrisy is when a merciful face conceals a judgmental heart. Hypocrisy is a problem because God doesn't judge by how things look. He doesn't judge the surface of things. We know that. You know, if you weren't comfortable with company, you didn't express what's deep inside. That's for intimate things. That's for people you know well. And you might just express the outside. Things are fine. And we can always tell one another what's happening deep inside of us. Um, God doesn't look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart of things. Um, what it says in Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. God judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We've talked about this before, but here's what thoughts are in this context. It's thoughts are opinions about God oftentimes we keep to ourselves. If I asked you what you think of God, you might say, and if you ask me, you might say, well, God's loving. If I pressed you, 
to find out what you really thought about him. And maybe it's things that are hard to talk about. That's what thoughts are. Thoughts are opinions about God, some of which we keep to ourselves. Attitudes are responses to God's will based on our thoughts about him. That's what attitudes are and actions are the results of our thoughts and attitudes. We've talked about the parable of the talents, and it just describes those pretty well. The individual who buried the talent, we've talked about this, he buried the talent, that's the action, and why did he bury the talent? He said because he was afraid. And why was he afraid? That's the attitude. The attitude is fear. The action is burying the talent, but the thought is the reason for being afraid. And what he said, I know that you're a hard man. Taking out what you don't put in and reaping what you don't sow. You get the progression? What was the thought? You are a hard man. Taking out what you do not put in and reaping what you do not sow. That's the thought. What's the attitude? I was afraid of you. What was the action? He buried his talent. And when the master comes, what do you think he called the servant to account for? Did he say, why did you bury that talent? He might have. Did he say, why were you afraid of me? Did he say, why did you think I was a hard man? Taking out what I don't put in and reaping what I do not sow. And you know the parable. What did he end up, what did he end up judging? The thought. I was a hard man, really? What do you think of me? I take out what I don't put in and reap what I don't sow. Um, authenticity is job one because God knows what we think, and those are the things that he would have us be open with him about. I'm going to back up. I'm going to talk a little bit about spiritual direction and pastoral counseling. Um, pastoral counseling and spiritual direction are a couple ministries that the church is offering through me at this point. And there's a little bit of a difference. We have thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Thoughts are opinions about God. They're the way we think about him. Attitudes are our response to God's will based on our thoughts. And actions are the results of our thoughts and attitudes. Spiritual direction is a ministry. It's similar to counseling, but it begins with thoughts. It doesn't begin with problems. It doesn't begin with actions. It begins with thoughts. We've developed a program with a couple levels that I take people through in a one-to-one basis. We schedule it in. There's a fee involved. But where we start is with thoughts, your views of God, what you think about him. And we move from talking about those views of God to the thoughts that come from those views and the actions that come from the thoughts and the attitudes. And as we break them down, we're able to move in the direction of being a person who is more aware of being loved and who is aware of loving others, who is able to love others. That is spiritual direction. Pastoral counseling is similar. You got this. Pastoral counseling begins differently. It begins with actions. And we don't begin with thoughts about God. We begin with actions, oftentimes problems. 
things that are disturbed, relationships that are problematical, and, and you need to get in a place where you want to talk about that in a confidential place. And then we begin with actions and then look at attitudes and thoughts. They, you see what's happening. We end up taking into consideration both things, but we start with different directions. Uh, pastoral counseling begins with the problems, with the actions, moves to attitudes and thoughts. Spiritual direction begins with the thoughts and moves to attitudes and actions. Why am I telling you this? Um, that might be something that you or somebody you know might want to take advantage of. We offer that ministry here at the church. The interesting thing is that it's there is a fee involved, but it's about the same as a uh, copay for Insurance purposes, there's not the ability to be reimbursed by insurance, but the copay is about the same. And, and the, the one thing that's an advantage is that it's something that can happen online. Uh, there are there are some restrictions based on if you're a licensed professional counselor, that's not possible because of the availability of things over the airways. But with respect to this, it's it's not an issue, so it's something that's available um, in an online form. So there are some cards. If this is something that you would be interested in talking about, there are some cards in the exits. Pick up one, spiritual direction and pastoral counseling for yourself or somebody else you might know. Okay, good. Let's move on. Authenticity. It's sometimes we need help to break down what we think and what we feel and, and what we think about God. And confidence. What's the evidence of faith in Christ? It says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. What is the evidence of faith in Christ? What would you say to that question? How can you tell if your faith in Christ is increasing? This verse says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Freedom is about speaking freely. That's what this freedom means. It's what you do when you enter into the presence of a king or one in authority, and you're able to speak freely with him. It's not just entering the king's presence. It's speaking freely. So through faith in Christ, if you understand Jesus reveals about the Father what you, you now all of us have room to grow in this. But to the degree you have faith in Christ, you're able to go into God's presence and speak more freely with him. That's what freedom means. Confidence is about inclusion. It's about being, feeling like you belong there. That's what faith in Christ is supposed to, what God would have it to develop. An ability to enter God's presence and to know that you're wanted there. You're welcomed, not just for you to go there, but to be in his presence and to speak freely with him about the things that you think and feel, some of which you really don't like thinking and feeling. But he wants you to speak with him about these things. The evidence of faith in Christ is our ability to approach God, to speak freely with him. That's the indication of increased faith, though there's authenticity and confidence and this transformation what's it what does it mean to be Christ-like what would you say what does it mean to be Christ-like well what was Christ like it says 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. This is Jesus' only self-description. What he describes, that what, what is he like? He is gentle and humble in heart. He's not harsh. He's not forceful. He's not what he's like. What does it mean to be transformed? What does it mean to be Christ-like then? It means to be become more gentle and less judgmental. That's what it means to be transformed, to become more gentle and less judgmental, because that's what Jesus is like. Um, he says, keep your life, it says in Hebrews, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? He said, never will I leave you. Um, Literally what that means, it's to untie. There was a, Paul was writing about, um, on a trip on a boat. He said, cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. So here's this word, I will never leave you. It's what happened when they untied the ropes from the rudders. It was a knot. They undid it, and it what happened after that? The, the rudder could swing freely. God will never do that to you. He will never untie you. He will never let you drift. He will never cast you adrift. That's what it says. He will never cast you adrift. And it says, never will I forsake you. Um, Paul writes the same word is used elsewhere. He said, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. God will never desert you what it says. He will never cast you adrift, and he'll never do what Demas did. So Demas was in a place where Paul needed him, and Demas took off. And what the writer to Hebrews says, God will never do that. God will never cast you adrift, and he will never leave you behind. Um, That's what makes God safe, isn't it? God will never cast you adrift, and never leave you behind. He's a safe haven and a secure base. Why do we need to know that? It's what transforms us. That's what transforms us. Authenticity. We end up learning to say real things to God. Confidence. We enter his presence, speak freely with him there, knowing we belong. Transformation. We begin to become more gentle with ourselves and others. Less forceful. Less harsh. Less judgmental. What does that lead to? Leads to strength. It says, I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What it says here is that it takes power to understand how loved you are. That takes power. It doesn't take any power to believe you're judged. That comes automatically for us. We have law in the heart, and we naturally believe that. If you are going to believe you're loved by him, it is going to take a supernatural power for you to be able to embrace that to the degree he would have us embrace it. And um, that is what the Spirit of God provides. Again, what we say, the Spirit of God is God opening up his heart. 
why God's Spirit communicates with you is not to convict you of sin. That's not what the Spirit does. I hear that so often. You know, it's the Spirit convicts. No. The Spirit doesn't convict you of sin. The Spirit convicts you that you're loved. That's what he does. It takes power to understand you're loved, and that's what the Spirit communicates. The deep things of God are not, he's not trying to figure out good and bad. That's not what God is like inside, deep inside. That's what the serpent said to Eve. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And he was under the impression that if you take God's pulse, that's what you'll find. That God deep inside is aware of good and evil. That's what it means to be God. You know what the deal is? I've told you this before. That's not what the Spirit reveals. The Spirit reveals what's deep within God is things that he freely gives you. Yeah, based on that, you would expect, because Jesus reveals God, right? If God is aware of good and evil, and if that's what he would be preoccupied with, we would expect to see that with Jesus, wouldn't we? And I've told you this before. People came up to Jesus, and they said, good teacher, what might, and he, he just didn't even let him finish. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Oh, Excuse me, <laughs> no we're testy today. But then he didn't say good teacher, he says what good thing, and he did the same thing. Why do you call me good? Based on what the serpent said to Eve, what Jesus should have said is, oh, okay, now we're talking. <laughs> good, okay, great, I'm all about good and evil. You know what the deal is? That's not what God's about. Deep within God, you won't find him quantifying good and evil. It's not what he's like. You know what he's you know what he reveals deeply? Well, we've talked about it. He cares for you. Why is that important? It's interesting. Because of what it allows, those who know love show love. That's the way it works. Those who know love show love. We love because he first loved us. The fear of judgment cannot fuel love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. All of us at some point. At some level, whether we're conscious of it or not, just so you know, whether we're conscious of it or not, are afraid of God. All of us deal with it. It takes power and time. That's the direction we move in. How many of us are there? We know God's love deeply. You know what? All of us have room to go. I have lots of room to go. You know what, though? That's the direction I'm headed. I want to know his love. I want to know it deeply. Because that is what will allow me to show his love. Right? That's the way it works. Is God going to frighten you into loving other people? doesn't work. There's no fear in love. It doesn't work. So if you're going to love, and that is obedience, right? God is not going to frighten you into loving. He's going to express to you spirit things, deep love things. Because as those take root, you learn to be authentic with him, holding what you think and feel and holding his hand at the same time. You learn to be confident coming into his presence, learning over time to speak freely, understanding you belong gradually, gradually, 
gradually transformed, gradually. Become a little bit more gentle with yourself, less judgmental with yourself, less apt to throw penalty flags at what you think and feel. God's not throwing them. Why are you? Say, this is dangerous. Is it? It's dangerous to throw flags. That's not what God's doing. And as gentleness towards self and others grows, what grows then? Love grows. And that's what God's all about. Harshness and judgment are like dashboard indicators. What do you do when you flash red? Some of, some of us turn our hatred inside. Some of us turn it outside. What do you do when you flash red? Uh, like a dashboard indicator. Um, when gentleness and love are low, you know what you need? What's the answer to that question? Gentleness is low. Love for self and others is low. What do you need? You need to be frightened. We love because he first loved us. You need a dose of love. You need to know your love. Um, when gentleness and love are high, our faith and love is high. Um, two critical questions that you have to ask, and we're going to have a closing song. Um, Two critical questions with respect to anything. You have to know what and how. What? What does God want from us? I think that's answered by TNS. Transformation and strength. God wants us to become more gentle, less judgmental. He wants us to know his love and show his love. If we wanted to do that, how do we do that? That's A and C. Authenticity. It begins there. Authenticity and confidence. A plus C equals T plus S. Authenticity and confidence lead to transformation and strength. Father, thank you for your word. and Thanks for who you are. Love comes easily for you. We don't always see it that way, and yet you reveal to us through your Son that that is, and your Spirit, that as is, that is what you are like. You are a safe haven and a secure base. And I pray that you would allow us, cause us, empower us so that our authenticity and confidence would increase and would lead to transformation and strength. For Jesus' sake, amen.